We have a special guest with us this morning. He is not a stranger to us. In fact, he's one of us. He is a professor at Biola, and uh, he has recently written a book called I Beg to Differ about conflict resolution. He is also a frequent speaker with the Family Life Marriage Conferences. He's back with us today. Tim Muehlhoff, would you welcome him this morning? Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Well, we love coming to this church. Uh, We love Mike's preaching. Kind of like a love-hate relationship with Mike's preaching. Love uh, how much he studies the scripture. I love his energy. But I hate that I often leave, like, thoroughly convicted. (laughs) I I wasn't out to be here last week, but I listened to the sermon online, and I was thoroughly convicted about reconciliation. I I can't think of a better topic that our country needs to hear, as well as an organization, a family, a church needs to hear about reconciliation. What we don't need at this point, though, with reconciliation are techniques. Uh, Techniques are absolutely valuable, and they'll come. But first, we have to have a heart attitude. Reconciliation, forgiveness, is absolutely impossible unless we first have the attitude by which we can forgive. I like what C.S. Lewis said. Forgiveness is a wonderful idea until you actually have something to forgive. (laughs) And I think the same is true with reconciliation. So what I want to do this morning is to talk about the heart attitude of what Mike said last week. What heart change do we need to have in which we now can become reconcilers and deal with the tensions that exist in every corporation, family, church, uh, or relationship? We call it the inevitability of conflict within communication theory. Now, the Apostle Paul wants to talk about two different kinds of knowledge in the book of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians 1.18 says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, Paul says. That word heart is very interesting in the New Testament, how Paul uses it. Sometimes he uses it to talk about your emotions. Sometimes he uses heart to talk about your intellect. Sometimes he uses heart to talk about your inner life. And sometimes he uh, uses the word heart to talk about your will or your volition. I think what Paul's trying to get at is that heart is all of you. All of you needs to be impacted by biblical truth. This is a well-educated church. I'm not sure we need more teachings about reconciliation. We need to actually apply what Mike talked about last week, but that's hard to do. Let me tell you what I think this word means in my own life. Before I got married, I I knew a lot about marriage, right? I had gone to weddings. I had been in weddings. And so when um, somebody said, uh, you're... uh, you know, I'm going to have my own wedding. I went to a wedding rehearsal. And again, the person who was doing it, Tom Robinson, said, here's what's going to happen. You're going to stand up there with a bunch of men in tux. Music is going to play. Everybody's going to stand up. Your wife's going to come down in a wedding dress. Got it. Check, 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 check. And then the day actually comes. You're there with your mafia, right, of all these (laughs) men. And the music plays. Everybody gets up. And Noreen turns the corner in her wedding dress with her dad, who's like 6'4". And they walk down that aisle, and then the minister says, who gives this woman to this man? And her dad says, I do, and her mother, and took her arm, looped it through my arm, leaned over, whispered in my ear, I'll kill you. Okay? (laughs) Wow! It was an intellectual, emotional, spiritual moment. 
Uh, listen, before I had my first child, if you would have said, hey, what's going to happen that day? I would have said intellectually, uh, I'm going to be in the operating, I'm going to be in the room, the delivery room. Uh, he's going to hand me the baby. I'm going to cut the umbilical cord. Check, check, check. But when you're in that moment, Right? I'm, I'm coaching my wife, which is hilarious. Men coaching women in childbirth. It's like coaching an avalanche. It's like, <laughs> go! You know, <clears throat> ladies, you are the stronger of the sexes. Honestly, if, if it was up to God, how much are we impacted by God? It's two vastly different questions. So as we take a look at heart knowledge this morning, let's use a test case from the book of Ephesians. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Verses uh, 7 and 8, this is what the Apostle Paul writes. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. So let's take a look at each one of these as a test case. Not to see if you know it and could pass a test on it, but if it's really impacted you. First, he mentions redemption. In the New Testament, there were roughly 6 million slaves in in the Roman Empire. You actually could buy a slave. You actually could show up. You would have a certificate. You would give it to that person. You would incur any debt the slave had. You would pay for that debt. You would redeem that slave, and that slave would come and be part of your family. Okay? So Paul's using that in a spiritual sense. He's saying you have been redeemed by God. But the question becomes redeemed from what? I can think of three things. First thing, you have been redeemed from sin. When you weren't a Christian, you had a sin nature. You were infected by sin. Uh, You had a a virus that infected all of you. How many of you have a computer? And how many of you have had a computer virus? Right? It, It mucks up the whole system. In 1990, there were roughly 200 identifiable viruses. Today, there's over... Uh, 2 million with 200 being added every single day. So you had a virus in the human system. When you became a Christian, guess what God did? He got rid of the virus. Do you still sin? The answer is yes. Even John would say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But now you sin because you want to. Before, you were a slave to sin because it was part of your nature. Today, God has given you a new nature. You don't have to sin. So you've been freed from that virus. Second thing you've been redeemed from, the world system. If I were to ask you, uh, as a non-Christian, how do you feel about yourself? Psychologists tell us we ask three questions continually, from the moment you're born to the moment you die. How important am I? Uh, Does anybody love me? And am I significant? Three key questions. Well, how did you answer those questions before you became a Christian? Well, most likely you answered it by saying, well, I have a good job. I feel good. I have a good family. Things are going well. Um, uh, I drive a good car. I have a good house, right? It's this roller coaster of the world. Uh, Let me show you my favorite Super Bowl commercial from three years ago. Now, listen, I don't know what to tell you about this year's Super Bowl. You couldn't pick two worst teams in the world to be in the Super Bowl, right? It is like the Seahawks and Belichick, right? It's like Hitler, Stalin. Who are you going to go for? I'm going to go for Stalin because I just can't root for Brady and and all that stuff and all the cheating and he's done it before. I'm sorry, I just can't. So I'm mostly going to watch the commercials (laughs) and eat food that's not good for me. So Let's watch my favorite commercial from three Super Bowls ago. 
But, but do you see the roller coaster ride, right? I don't have a date, feel bad about myself. Uh, but now I go to the dance. I'm getting some compliments about the car, but I go to the dance. I'm reminded I'm alone. I see the most beautiful girl I can think of. I walk up and kiss her. Awesome. Get punched in the face. Not so good. Questions my masculinity. I'm back in the car. Welcome to the roller coaster ride. Right? I feel good about myself because I live in one particular subdivision. I feel good about myself because I, I actually weigh what the average American model weighs. I feel good about myself if I have a grade point. I feel good about myself, right? And that is the roller coaster ride of the world. And God is saying, I've redeemed you from that. I've redeemed you from that. The reason you're significant is because Jesus Christ died for you. That's why you're significant. 2,000 years ago, Jesus thought it was worth it to die for you. How powerful is that? Now, listen, I'm not saying cars don't matter, and I'm not saying that how you dress doesn't matter. A couple of years ago, my wife and I had an anniversary, and I wanted to surprise her by doing two things. One, I went and just stopped at a florist and bought 21 long stem roses. Do you know how expensive those are? <laughs> they, I, I said, hey, 21 long stem roses, right? <laughs> and as they're doing it, I'm actually looking up at how much one long stem rose costs. I'm thinking, Wow. But then I had a sports car. I borrowed a friend's sports car. It was a convertible. I don't even know what kind of was. It just ended in a Z. That's all you need to know. And now we're, we're gone this date. We're driving around. We're having a blast pulling up to people are looking at us like, what? Look at that couple, right? It's awesome. Until we decided, let's put gas in the car. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to use all this gas, right? So we get in there. I cannot figure out how to open the gas tank. I can't. There's no button. There's no anything. So I'm finally walking around the car going... And people are going, that's not your car. (laughs) God redeemed you from that. What's the third thing he redeemed you from? He redeemed you from the power of Satan. Hey, you wonder why the world's so messed up today? Watch CNN for a half hour and you'll see a world that is in turmoil. Why? Because this is enemy-occupied territory. Right? Satan is the prince of the power of the air. When Jesus came to earth, it was an invasion like Normandy, right? He was on enemy-occupied territory. You were deeply impacted by Satan. But now that you're a Christian, God has freed you from that. The only influence Satan now has is the influence you give him. The only access Satan has to you now is what you do. But listen, Satan isn't going to attack this church frontally. He's too smart for that. Um, the book of Genesis, Genesis 3.1. Uh, Mike said to me, you can preach, but you've got to mention Genesis. So Genesis 3.1, very interesting verse that says, the serpent, Satan, was more crafty than any beast of the field. In Hebrew, that word crafty means subtle. Right? He didn't just walk up to Adam and Eve and said, hey, sin against God. Adam and Eve would have put up their defenses. He was subtle. I, I do martial arts. I do kung fu. When you, practice, when you spar with the black belts, they don't just come at you because you're trained how to do that. They, they, they get your mind on something like that would just kick your leg repeatedly. Boom. Boom. You're like, this is like being nibbled to death by a duck. What the heck is this? You know? <laughs> this is what they'll do. They'll fake a kick. You look down and then they hit you. Okay? That's what Satan's doing. He's giving you these jabs coming with the left hook. So guess what? Paul, in his wisdom, says, let me tell you exactly how Satan gets a foothold. So in the book of uh, Galatians, Paul says this, do not let the sun go down on your anger. By the way, notice what he didn't say, resolve the conflict by the time the sun goes down. Right? No. Um, No. Deal with the anger Why? You don't want to give the devil a foothold. Men and women, 
We love what's happening at this church, but if I can notice it, Satan can notice it. So how is he going to disrupt this church? A frontal attack of some kind? No, we're too good for that. I think we're too mature for that. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to get you to be angry about something. It doesn't even matter what. Satan doesn't care. And he wants that anger to germinate. Anger that is cemented is what we call bitterness. And Aristotle would say a bitter person is the hardest person to work with, to reconcile with. So Satan just wants you to stew about something and let it continue on and on and on. So what we need to do is to make sure we're not going to bed angry about an issue. Doesn't mean we don't care about the issue. Doesn't mean we're not going to try to resolve the issue. But we cannot do it from a spirit of anger because Paul has said you're giving the devil a foothold in your life and it will affect the entire community. So you've been redeemed from all of that. But notice what the passage says. That redemption came at great price. Paul is quick to point out you were redeemed through his blood. Right? If you redeemed a slave in New Testament times, you'd use coins, right, to do it. Peter actually says this, know that you were not redeemed with perishable things like coins, but with imperishable things like the blood of Jesus Christ. Now here I think it's a great moment to ask the question, I'm sure you know that intellectually. I'm sure it takes nobody by surprise that Jesus Christ died for the church. Uh, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, right? But here's what I think we need to embrace at a heart level. He died for you as an individual. Yes, he died for the world. Yes, he died for the church, but he did it person by person. How do you know that? How can I say that with such great confidence? In Luke 15, Jesus is asked a very interesting question by the Pharisees. He's asked, uh, describe God's love to me. Jesus gives us his three most famous stories. He says, when a woman loses one coin, what does she do? She tears up the entire house looking for it. When a shepherd loses one sheep, what does he do? He leaves the 99, looks for the one. When a father has one son go rogue, go prodigal, what does he do? He runs towards the one. The most important thing about those three stories is the one. It was one coin, one sheep, one son, Jesus died for the one. He died for you. Now, if that doesn't sink at home, Paul totally embraces that kind of theology. Look what he says in Galatians 2.20. He says this. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live in faith, but in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Men and women, to know that Jesus hung on that cross, right? It wasn't the nails that kept him there. What kept him there was you. What does Hebrews say? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Despising the shame. Interesting Greek word, despising the shame, it means to think little of. If I were to get a phone call, and the phone call is one of your kids has been abducted, right, kidnapped, um, <laughs> on some days I'd say, which one? Um, <laughs> no, no, your son has been kidnapped. I'm, I want $20,000. I'd be like, done. No, I don't think you heard me. Twenty thousand Done. You have my son. Done. That's what Jesus says in that verse in Hebrews. Despising the shame. Done. Why? I love you that much. Now, do you embrace that at a heart level? That's the million-dollar question. And we need to find out ways that that influences all of us, how I view myself, how I view my spouse, my kids, my neighbors, church members, uh, co-workers. If I'm that profoundly loved, can I love other people that way? 
Then he says this, so that you have been uh, redeemed through his blood, the forgiveness of your trespasses, right? If you're a Christian, all of your sins have been dealt with. When Jesus died 2,000 years ago, how, many, how much of your sin was in the future? All of it. So when he died 2,000 years ago, he died for all of it, past, present, future. So when you embrace Christ as your Savior, all of your sin is forgiven, past, present, future. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's shocking. But it's all been done with. There's nothing left for God to be mad at. That's why Paul says there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? God loves you. Hear me when I say this. He loves you as much as he will right now. His love will never increase. It will never decrease. Walk out of the doors of this church and be the best Christian you know how. His love didn't increase. Be the worst Christian you know how. His love didn't decrease. Why? Because it's all based on what Jesus Christ did. That is the profound nature of his forgiveness. Then Paul says this. But is it possible that you would exhaust his grace? You, you would exhaust his forgiveness. Hey, I want you to think of the sin that you go to. What's your go-to sin? What's the sin you struggle with the most? I know what mine is. I, I could let you read my journal, but then I'd have to kill you. Okay? So I know what my sin is. What's yours? Anger? Jealousy? Lust? Right? Uh, what is it? Is it possible you'd actually exhaust God's grace? You, you'd actually exhaust it. Do you know what Paul says? No, no, no. This forgiveness comes to you based on the riches of his grace. Uh, you know who my heroes are in this world? Bill and Melinda Gates, right? Uh, I don't think they're Christians necessarily, but they have attempted to use their wealth to eradicate poverty in the entire world. They started a foundation called the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, to get it going, they wrote a check, a personal check, check for $28 billion dollars. We just started a center for marriage at Biola University. We're seeking money. I would take $20 from you if you had it on you, okay? Um, so $28 billion. Let's say you get a phone call from Bill and Melinda Gates' personal secretary, and she says, hey, the Gates have heard that maybe you have some debt issues after Christmas, so they would like to write a second check for $28 billion and give it to you. By the way, my math, tends, my math friends tell me that $28 billion, you could spend $1 million a year, and it would take you 28,000 years to spend $28 billion. But if you took the money stuck in a bank, just lived off the interest, every time you spent a $1 million, you'd be making money. God is saying this. His grace, the riches of his grace, you will never exceed his grace. So let's just do a quick inventory. You've been redeemed from what? How the world judges success. You, all your sins have been forgiven. You're no longer hostage to your sin nature or to uh, the devil. Um, all your sins are forgiven. You've been redeemed by his blood. Now, what do you do with that? I'm reading a really convicting book on happiness written by some psychologists in which they did a fascinating study about gratitude. They make the argument that if you want to be psychologically whole, it... it it's grateful people that are the most healthiest people in the world. So they did a very fascinating study I think is amazing. They took two control groups. This group was told three times a day I want you to do this. I want you to list what you're thankful for. Second control group. I want you to notice what you don't have. Three times a day. So group number one. Uh, I have a car. Now, I, dri I drive, it's not a great car, but I don't do that. I say, no, I'm thankful I have a car. 
right? This group, yeah, I have a car, but I wish it was a BMW. I have a house. Yeah, we have a house, but it's a smaller house. Okay, I have a family. Yeah, but they're, they're driving me crazy. Now, uh, I belong to a church. Yeah, but there's problems within the church, and I would do it really differently if I was in control. Okay, boom, 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 boom. The first group, within a certain cycle of almost a year, reported better sleep, loss of weight, uh, loss of migraines, and on every instrument they could think of, this group was healthier. The other group had no movement whatsoever. In other words, every time they thought of something they were thankful for, they mitigated it by thinking, well, it could be bigger and better. Make sense? So you might be sitting there thinking, okay, uh, guest speaker, wish he had hair. Right? I mean, it's just... <laughs> so let's be grateful for what God has done. But Paul says, I'm not done yet. And just in case I didn't drive it home, I'm going to drive it home within this short passage. He uses a Greek word, perisuo, that you just need to be familiar with. We translate it, if you have the New American Standard, lavish. If you have the NIV, it's the word showered. Now, why can it be translated kind of two different ways? Well, because it can mean to exceed a number or it can mean to exceed a measurement, particularly like rainfall. Right? So Paul is saying this, God has lavished you with this grace. So I want you to think of um, that sin, right? And, and is there a time that you can exhaust God's patience, his love? Well, what if you put a number on it? I mean, come on, what's kind of crazy? Can I go back to God's throne of grace a thousand times with this sin? I mean, come on, again, a thousand times going back saying, God, I'm so sorry I lost my temper. I'm so sorry I looked at pornography. I'm so sorry I gossiped. I'm sorry. And finally, don't you think, God, after a thousand, oh, what the heck, 5,000 times, do you not think God would stop and say, enough, I'm not forgiving you for this. Come on, enough. Guess what perisuo is? to exceed a number. So guess what? Whatever number you came up with, 10,000, exceed that number. Paul says you've been lavished with grace. We need to find out as many ways possible as making this real to ourselves so that it goes from head knowledge to heart knowledge. So here's one way to try to do it. I need a coffee lover. Who loves coffee? You just love... Awesome! Would you come up? Please come up. What, what's your name? Chris? Chris? My, my email is Java Bliss. Okay, but what's your email? Java Java bliss, right? This is, this is not a plant. Did we plant this? No, not at all. Hey, go buy a cup of coffee. What kind of coffee do you like? Just plain drip. Just plain drip. Oh, the flat one. Yeah, I, I like a vanilla latte. Here's $5. Go get a cup of coffee at the uh, well. It's called the well, right? Yeah. Awesome. Good. Great. That's great. Chris. All right, awesome. Now, that was kind. I would say that was unexpected. We didn't plan this, did we? No. All right, so that, that is not what Paul's talking about. Chris, come on, come on back up. Come on back up. <laughs> What, what do you like to get with coffee? Do you like to get something? I like the flat white, so it doesn't need anything. You, you don't, but you don't need anything with coffee? Oh, man, I got it. The, the What's that? Scones. Scones. I love scones. Remember when you thought scones were good for you? <laughs> right? I'm going to have a scone because I'm watching my waist. Yeah, growing. Okay, so here's, a, here's another $5 bill. Get yourself, get yourself a scone. Hey, is it, who's that sitting next to you right there? Do you like coffee? Yes. Chris, come back here. <laughs> 
Got to get him. Come on. Got to get him. So here's another $5 bill. Go get him coffee. Do you like to have anything with coffee? Yes. What? A new car. A new car. <laughs> Chris, come back up here. Yeah. <laughs> we, we definitely didn't plan this. Okay, yeah, here we go. But, oh, hey, 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 here's another one. I'm sorry, another $5 bill. Come on, go. Here, oh, here's another one. Do you have, just get somebody something. Go, go. Now, listen, what's amazing about this is this will eventually end because the Mealhoffs don't have that kind of money. <laughs> uh, but imagine this was Bill and Melinda Gates. $58 billion. Eventually, that would end. And you would get your car with that coffee. But listen, God is saying, my grace never ends. Now, you know what's interesting about this illustration? The times that I've done it in the past, people always try to give the money back. The woman I did this morning at 8 o'clock service tried to give it back as I was doing it. Right? Because it's like, I can't take this. I can't take So here's what God is saying. If you want to give, because they always want to give it back, here's what I think God would say. Give it back by giving it to other people. So how crazy would it be, Chris, to go to the well and, and you and your husband are getting coffee and people and your friends are right next to you and they're kind of like, well, um, I guess we'll pay for our own even though this is the $5 lady right there. No, you get this. You want to give it. Now, here's the million-dollar question. I'm not asking if you get this academically. I'm not going to give a pop quiz after this sermon. I'm asking if you get it at the heart level. So let me give you two quick tests to see if you're buying what the Apostle Paul is selling. A very short test and a more difficult, longer test. Here's the short test. I heard this 20 years ago from Brennan Manning, who's a Christian author. I was at a Campus Crusade for Christ meeting, and Brennan got up and he said this, I want you to imagine that you're at a Christian gathering of some kind, and you walk in and your friends are there, but Jesus is there as well. When Jesus learns that you're there, he turns around and you make eye contact. What is your immediate gut level? He is slightly disappointed to see you or is overjoyed to see you. Now, I got to tell you, when I first heard that, I I was disturbed by that. Because for me, my gut level was he was slightly disappointed. Why? I know the week I just had. Right? So I went up to five of my closest Christian friends, all on staff at Campus Crusade of Christ, men I deeply admire, all five. I said, all right, what was your gut-level reaction? All five said, slightly disappointed. So men, let me tell you this. Based on what Paul has just said, when you walk in that room, you know the week you had, and Jesus knows the week you had. He turns around. He is overjoyed to see you overjoyed. Our church will go nowhere unless we believe that. Now, are there future conversations? Does he want to deal with your sin? Does he want to talk? Yeah, 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 yeah. But you don't get this first step right. You don't get the other steps right. C.S. Lewis said, life is made of first things, second things. Get the first things in place, the second things follow. Men and women, this is a profound first thing. So we need to sit with the Lord and do whatever it takes to get to the point where you walk in And Jesus is thrilled, overjoyed to see you. I have three sons. If during this sermon I saw one of them walk in, right, which meant they're late, right? If they just walk in right now, they're late. And I know what they're doing. I still, as an imperfect parent, would be glad to see my son. So men and women, we're not going anywhere as Christians until you realize that Jesus is overjoyed. Second, longer test. 
Jesus gives a parable in Luke chapter 18 that is really disturbing. Here's the parable. He says this. There is a slave who owes 10,000 talents to the king. 10,000 talents is an unbelievable amount of money in the New Testament. King Herod's annual salary was only 900 talents, right? So uh, modern theologians have said if we take 10,000 talents, put it into the, today's economy with deflation, we're easily talking a billion dollars. Jesus' point is he can't pay it back. The king is going to sell the slave and his family, but the slave comes up to the king and says, please, would you consider forgiving me? What an audacious request. The king, in fact, does forgive him a 10,000-talent debt. This guy walks out. Slaves could actually own slaves, and he owns a slave who owes owes him 100 denarii. One denarii is an average day's wage. So we're talking maybe three and a half, four months of wages. And, and he asks for forgiveness, and this guy who's just been forgiven says, no, give it to me now or I'm selling your family. The king hears about it, calls him back in and says, whoa, wait a minute, I forgave you 10,000 talents. You wouldn't forgive 100 denarii. I'm selling you and your family. Men and women, grace doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want. There are expectations with grace. Go back to the party, uh, that Christian gathering. You walk in, Jesus is overly thrilled with you. Your first reaction is, awesome! I know what kind of week I just had. He obviously doesn't care. He's thrilled to see me. I can walk out of here and do whatever the heck I want. That is a misapplication of grace. No, no, no. We, because we've been forgiven 10,000 talents, we are to forgive other people regardless of what they've done. Chris, it'd be crazy for you to hoard that money, right? Just hoard it. It's my money. Hey, forget you. I got it. Jesus would say, no, no, no. Take my grace. Don't have to worry about it. It's never going to end. There's not a limit to the grace that I'm going to give you. So men and women, we have to live with this. So how do we make it go from head knowledge to heart knowledge? That can be really difficult to do. Uh, Lately, I've been a little bit dissatisfied with my walk with God. You know how you kind of hit just a stale patch? So I went up to three friends that I greatly admire at Biola, and I went to each one of them and said, hey, I I noticed something's different about your intimacy with God. What is it? What are you doing that I'm not? All three mentioned something I'd never heard before. It's called centering prayer. It's an ancient practice of the church. Here's what centering prayer is. You start your prayer time with 20 minutes, and you just sit there with one word. That's it. You just think about one word. For the last couple months, I've been taking the word lavished and just sitting there thinking about being lavished with God's grace for 20 minutes. And then I get to my requests and and things like that. It's had a profound impact. By the way, when I first thought about, remember perisuo could be translated exceeding a number or exceeding measurement, particularly rainfall? I thought of a movie that the American Film Institute picked as the best American musical ever produced. And I immediately thought of a scene that when I do my centering prayer, I actually imagine the scene you're about to see from a movie called Singing in the Rain. So watch Gene Kelly. So I, with this scene, I imagine that rain is God's grace. I love that scene where he takes the umbrella and he lowers it and water is just cascading over him. And I imagine that's God's grace and it's never going to end. By the way, why is he so happy in the movie? It's because of the love of a woman. Imagine if you were convinced how much God the Father really loves you and how much Jesus is absolutely thrilled to see you and to jump around in his grace. 
So I want to challenge you with two things this week. Join me in some homework. One, when you're showering, give me 30 extra seconds at the end of the shower. Not 40, because we're in a drought. <laughs> 30. And I just, I stand there and I let that water cascade over me and pretend it's God's grace. By the way, I imagine the shower being hooked up to a super tanker of water. And I'm just showered. Now, the real test is when I walk out of there, am I more gracious to other people? Does it extend to family members, church members, right? Second, would you do that experiment that the uh, psychologist came up with? Would you be the group one, not group two? In other words, this week, practice something that I've done periodically. You are only allowed to be thankful for things, not qualify it. So this week, I want you to think, I'm married... I'm thankful for being married. Every part of your stomach is going to want to say, and I wish he would. Nope, that's group two. Group one, I I am thankful that I'm married. I'm thankful for my kids. I'm thankful for this church. No qualifiers. I'm thankful I have a job at Biola University. No qualifiers. I'm thankful for the Super Bowl. No, that's a bad one. Right? Let's do that. Let's be people of grace and ask the Lord as that water is showering over us and we're doing centering prayer that we become more gracious people. And second, let's just count our blessings this week with no qualifiers whatsoever. And I want us to go to bed every single night imagining walking into that party and Jesus turns around and he's like, Chris! Tim! Come here. Oh, Lord. I can't. Hey, shut up. Come here. Right? Let me pray for us. Father, we're bowled over by your grace, the riches of your grace. We thank you for redemption that came through your blood. We're thankful for the forgiveness of our sins, past, present, future. Father, we're thankful for this church. We're thankful for the leadership of the church. We're thankful for this country. We're thankful for work for life. We're thankful for you. So, Father, receive our praise right now in music, but I pray that you'd receive our praise when we walk out of these doors, and we are more gracious. We're quicker to forgive. We look for ways to reconcile, because we're remindful of what Jesus said. Blessed are the peacemakers. Amen. As we respond to this message of grace, this grace that only Jesus gives and is upon this church. Would you let the song soften your hearts to recognize and receive it? Let's sing.
Hasn't it been good to be here this morning? Can we thank Tim again? Thanks for bringing that timely message. Amen. Some of you may want prayer this morning. We've got prayer over here in the prayer room. Some of you may want to know more about following Jesus Christ. And we've got a team called the Believe Team back that corner over there. You may have decided to follow Jesus for the first time today. Go see him. They'd love to talk with you. We've got some important announcements. As Mike mentioned in the video, next week... Services are 8.30, 10, 
and 1130. 8.30, 10, and 11.30. If you are a high schooler, a parent of a high schooler, high school will be meeting at a new time. High school will begin to meet at 11.30 beginning next week. So 11.30 next week for high school. If you're brand new with us today, or you're fairly new, and you're looking to get plugged in here at the church, we've got a free, I'll say it again, free lunch for you today at 12.15. If you want to stick around, it's over in the commons, 12.15. It's called the Guest Lunch Out. So we welcome you to that. God bless you guys. We'll see you back here again next week.